Well, good morning one last time. I'm so thankful that you've joined us for this gathering of our worship service. And as I said earlier, we are all about one person, Jesus, all about one mission, making disciples of him to the glory of God. And we rely on one word, specifically scripture, God's inspired and errant word to help guide us. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, please open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 7 to 10, as Matt just read. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 10, and I will pray for us as you're turning there. Father, we thank you so much that every time we open your word, you're inspired and breathed out scripture that we get to hear from you. Lord, we know that we come into this room with so many needs, so many physical, spiritual, emotional needs, things that are on our minds, on our hearts, our bodies are hurting and, and failing. And yet, Lord, amidst all of that, we ask you to give us peace that surpasses understanding, a deep awareness of your voice as we hear it spoken in Paul's letter to the church near Ephesus. Lord, I pray that you'd open not only the ears and the eyes of our hearts, but also the ears and the eyes of our souls so that we would hear your word, receive it, and that we would go away enriched by it. Lord, we need you to speak to us more than we need words from anyone else. And so at this point, I ask you to fill me with your spirit that I would say and proclaim only what would make most of Jesus and you would guard me from saying or thinking anything else. We ask all of this in your son's name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. What is the greatest need that you have right now? What is the greatest need that you have right now? I know immediately on a Sunday morning at like 10 o'clock, you might be thinking, man, I wish I would have gotten another cup of coffee. I wish I would have gotten one of those farm fresh donuts outside that everyone looks like they were enjoying. See, many of us, we bring in these obvious, meaning kind of somewhat trivial physical needs, but the reality is that many of us enter, actually all of us enter this room with needs that are harder to put words to. We have concerns, we have fears, we have anxieties that oftentimes feel overwhelming, oftentimes crippling, oftentimes point us to our deepest needs being not just physical, but spiritual and emotional. It's kind of like we're runners at the end of a marathon who know they desperately need something, but until they're offered water, they're just walking around in need. We've come to this room this morning ready to present to God the very deep physical and spiritual needs that we have because we know that in him, as Paul is going to tell us 36 times in this, in this letter to the church in your Ephesus, in him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In God alone, we have reason to hope, reason to praise, reason to live to his glory because he meets all of our deepest needs, not just physical, but the deep need for reconciliation to him through faith in his son's work on our behalf. So it's no wonder that as we open up verse 1 to 14, which we've begun last week and we'll conclude next week, we see a singular big idea. Praise God. Praise God. And, and Paul is going to unpack why we should praise God, but chief amongst those reasons is that we bless God because in Christ we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, last week we opened this letter from Paul to the church, written, written in about 62 AD, to the church in and around Ephesus. He's writing while he's bound in, in prison in Rome. And yet he's rejoicing spiritually. He's leading us on a hike of praise, is what we called it last week. A hike, a spiritual trek. We've set out 
venturing through the forest of God's beauty and glory in order to hear from him, in order to see and savor Jesus, the one who reconciles unholy sinners to a holy God. And last week, we heard that in chapters 1 to 3, we're going to be told all about the new identity that's given to us in Christ, a new identity. And then chapter 4 and 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, is all about the activity that flows from that identity. It's all about position in Christ, driving practice through Christ. All about the wealth of God's riches to us in Christ, dictating and determining our walk for and through Him in the world. And so last week, we began this spiritual trek, this spiritual hike through this wondrous letter, and we took one small step through verse 1 to 6. Verse 1 to 6. And we saw Paul instruct us to praise God because in Christ, we've been chosen for adoption by the Heavenly Father. Reason for praise and peace for those who are in Christ. And verse 3 to 14, one really long sentence in the original was unpacked in three different weeks because Paul takes us from one scenic overlook in which we see this blessing of being chosen by God for adoption and now takes us to the next scenic overlook and says that in the Son you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed, you've been ransomed, bought back, liberated through faith in the Son, through faith in Jesus, his, his work on your behalf. And Paul is going to unpack what does it mean to be redeemed by the Son in verse 7 through 10. And what we're going to see is this redemption, it was a costly freedom, costly for Jesus, freeing for us. It brings with it a complete forgiveness of every past, present, and future sin. And it procures for us a very certain future. Redemption through the Son. A costly freedom, complete forgiveness, and a certain future. All in verse 7 to 10. So again, if you have your Bibles, please keep those open because we need to hear from God's words. And I want you to see that these are God's words, not just my ideas. Verse 7, we hear first of a costly freedom and redemption through the Son. In Him, in Jesus... The star of the entire letter in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. My parents will never forget that day. My parents will never forget that day. They were a young married couple. I was barely a year old. We were living in a home in southwest Houston, or so I was told. I don't remember it. <laughs> And my parents were, as they, you know, a young married couple, no real concerns or cares in the world, returning from a normal errand to their regular house, the only home they'd ever known, felt peace and comfort there. And they opened the door, they set foot in, and immediately their peace was robbed and fear was ingrained. They were panic-stricken. They took one look and realized the place had been turned upside down, inside out. Thieves had broken in, robbing them of just about every possession they could imagine and robbing them of the peace they felt in their own home. My dad even told me that in the back recesses of the house, he heard someone scurrying off, hoping not to be found out. Because remember, this is Texas. And stuff happens to, to burglars before the cops get there. <laughs> Enough said. And yet, my parents felt racked in fear. Someone had broken into their home. Someone had robbed them of not only meaningful financial possessions, but things that were irreplaceable to them. You know, like grandma's rings and those like things that you give each other in your high school love letters, probably in the jewelry box too, you know. Their possessions, their valuable things were taken. 
They called the police. The police said, we can help you. We'll file the report. But your best bet at reclaiming, owning a second time over what was once yours but now has been stolen and lost, or redeeming these things, go to the local pawn shop. That's where the thieves take the stuff. You can buy it back. You're going to have to pay a high price. But for you to ransom your things that were once lost to now become yours, to own a second time over, you need to be willing to pay that ransom price. Redeem. Redemption. All through Jesus. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption. The same sort of redemption that my parents, to a much lesser degree, They bought back the things that the thieves had stolen from them. They went to the pawn shops, willing to pay the price to liberate those things, to own a second time what was once theirs but then lost. In Jesus, we have redemption. Not just physically, but spiritually. In Jesus, God offers to buy us back, to liberate us from sin, Satan, and death. But if this is your first time checking church out or even hearing about Christianity, you might be wondering, why do I need redemption? When did this crime, this cosmic crime happen? And was I a victim or a perpetrator? You see, Genesis 1 and 2 takes us back to the scene of the crime. <laughs> Genesis 1 and 2 says, God made all things, and he called them very good. There is perfect peace in God's house, vertically and horizontally, union with each other and union with him. And then in Genesis 3, a terrible crime happens. Things turn upside down, inside out. In comes the serpent, tempting our first ancestors to doubt God's goodness, to disobey his commands. And of course, we were part victim, but also part perpetrator, because our first ancestors, they doubted God's goodness. They took the bait. They ate the fruit. They satiated the desires of their wayward hearts, and they fell. They fell. They fell short of holiness that God required. They fell out of perfect relationship with him. They fell into enmity between each other and one, and between one another and between God. That peace, that shalom that comes in a home right, rightly ordered was lost. But not before redemption is promised. Remember the end of Genesis chapter 3. The scene of the crime looks ugly, but the powerful God speaks words of hope. He promises that a savior, a redeemer will come. Someone to bruise the serpent's head. Someone to crush and beat their enemy once and for all. And the end of Genesis 3, we know an animal is sacrificed. Naked, but now shameful, Adam and Eve, they're clothed in garments. A preview to another clothing. The Redeemer coming to give his righteousness for us. And this theme of redemption, this work of God buying his people back, is what he's been about, not just since Genesis, but throughout the Old Testament. We see it. We get to Exodus. God's people, Israel, enslaved. Enslaved in Egypt under a harsh taskmaster, Pharaoh, for 430 years longing for redemption, longing for restoration and relief. And God hears their cries, promises to redeem. Listen to his words of hope in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. He says via Moses to his people, I am the Lord. What greater way to have inspired confidence? I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the Egyptians 
I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. He promised and he did it. He did it. Remember the ten plagues? Invoking fear amidst Pharaoh's heart, compelling him to release God's people. That last tenth and final plague, the Passover lamb. The lamb that was slain and the blood painted on the doorpost, invoking God's mercy as a sign to him saying, pass over the houses in which the blood is posted or painted on the doorpost. Pass over the firstborns in that house, while instead this judgment was carried out on the firstborns of every other house. Invoking of mercy, deliverance from from judgment, and a provision of mercy all through the blood. See, this blood matters, and the, it's the same blood that we're going to talk about in a moment in Ephesians 1.7. We have redemption through the blood. In the Exodus, they had redemption through the blood. Exodus chapter 12. The blood on those doorposts shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, this is God speaking, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Somehow the blood saves This work in Exodus 12 is pointing to a greater blood than even the blood of an animal, a lamb slain in Exodus 12. It's pointing to the person and work of our perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. See, Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The blood is that of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. The blood is the only blood, his blood is the only blood that will save us because our greatest enemy is not Pharaoh. Our greatest enemy is our wayward heart, sin, Satan, and death, to which we would be enslaved for all eternity. You see, Jesus will not become your greatest treasure or my greatest treasure until we have seen he's met our greatest need. Jesus won't be your greatest treasure until you've seen that in him he offers to meet your deepest need. And your deepest need is this, the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. The gospel isn't good news until we realize the bad news that's in us. The wages of our sin is death. We have fallen short of God's holiness. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. We inherited their penalty and that nature. We failed to live the life he requires of us to be in perfect relationship. And worse yet, our blood can't satisfy. Our blood is not righteous. It's not holy. We need the blood of a righteous redeemer to come to us. And in mercy, in mercy, God offers to pass over us through faith in the perfect sacrificial lamb's blood shed for our behalf and faith in the one who clothes us in righteousness in a much greater way than even Adam and Eve were clothed back in the garden and faith by faith in the one who will crush that serpent's head on the cross, bruise the serpent's head as it said in Genesis 3. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us you have been bought with a price. Our freedom is costly. It is costly to Jesus. It's his blood that was shed for us. When the gospel writer John announces Jesus' entrance into, into the world, remember what he says in verse 29 of the first chapter of his gospel? Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, echoes of Exodus, The Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. He is the anticipated redeemer. He is the one we've been looking to and longing for ever since Genesis 3. He has come to dwell with his people. It reminds us those bloody doorposts in Egypt were always pointing forward to the bloody posts at Calvary. The bloody posts in Egypt let us know our need. The bloody posts at Calvary help us appreciate his provision to forgive us, to win us back, to liberate us, to redeem through his blood. See, it's no accident that when 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about the way that we were redeemed, he says it could only come through the blood, much more precious than any financial or valuable means. He says there, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you were ransomed. It means rescued, redeemed, bought out of. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that disposition to sin that we have. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. We can't put a price tag. We couldn't offer the financial gift big enough to rescue ourselves. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That blood that was painted on the doorpost in Exodus saved. That blood that was painted on the post of Calvary now saves anyone who is washed by it. And so that's the question for us. Have you been washed by the blood? See, it is one thing to track with me and say, okay, I went through the laborious Genesis, Exodus, connected Ephesians. I get the theology behind it. I get it. I can agree with it. But agreeing with Jesus isn't why he came. He came for you to believe in him, to receive him, to know your great need in him and for him, and then treasure him as the greatest gift only by faith. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. He is the one who has shed his blood for you. So my invitation is, if you've yet to receive him, if you've yet to personally give him your sin, receive his forgiveness, would you be washed by the blood today? Would you receive him as your savior, the one who died to forgive you of your sin, whose death on the cross points to your great need? How great was your need? The son of God had to die for it. How great was God's love for you? The son of God died for you. Would you run to him? Would you be washed in the blood? What a costly freedom. And this costly freedom gives us complete forgiveness if we are in him. We believe in Jesus. Complete forgiveness. Let's continue on in our spiritual hike as we move from verse 7 into verse 8. Complete forgiveness all through redemption in the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. I don't know about you, but I am glad that the snow is over. I'm glad that you all made it here safely. Snow, ice, nonetheless. It reminded me, as I look back from pictures a few years ago, I grew up in the Northeast, and in January, we used to not get just a little, like, flurry that would wash away with rain. We could set our clocks by the anticipated nor'easter snow that would hit us every January. And if you've yet to live through one of these treacherous events, a nor'easter is this abundant lavish dumping of snow that's measured in feet, not inches, something that multiple days of rain cannot wash away. 
And the only redeeming part of this snow, in my opinion, some of you like snow, my, my apologies, the only redeeming part of a nor'easter was this. Growing up and in, in living in a grimy city, the, the snow, the white perfection of it would blanket everything. This pure glistening beauty on the outset, but then even better, a few days or sometimes weeks <laughs> later, it would wash everything underneath it away. It was as if the Philadelphia Department of Streets had been working overnight for like a, a, like a week around the clock and, and wiping away all the debris, the nasty garbage that would piled up, all washed away as the snow melted. It was this kind of c- cleansing of a grimy city by a complete covering of snow. In such a greater way, God offers to completely forgive us, to pour out his grace in lavish measure, to cover us, to cleanse away the crimson stains of our sin, make us as white as snow, spiritually speaking. What grace. A total, complete forgiveness of past, present, and future sin. And we know it's all of this. Because in verse 7 it says, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our trespasses need to be forgiven. Trespasses simply meaning all those willful violations of God's commands. All those times where we know what God expects and would long for us to do, but we say, no thanks. I'd rather go my own way. I'd rather have that fruit instead of trust your commands. I'd rather pursue vengeance because it makes me feel better than be a peacemaker, even though that would be hard on me. I'd rather speak those words about someone behind their back because it makes me feel a little bit better than them instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to use my words only to edify and build up others. These little trespasses, little trespasses in quotes, point us to the reality that none of us are perfect. We are all in need of grace, and our trespasses are what would naturally separate us from a holy God perfectly holy, without sin. We as trespassers can't be in his presence unless we are forgiven of those trespasses. We need a lavish, superabundant, nor'easter snow-like grace to be poured out on us. And thankfully, God does this. He dumps it on us, not just out of the riches of his grace, but according to it. Let's continue on in verse 8. The forgiveness of our trespasses is according to According to, not just out of, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Past, present, future forgiveness only comes if it's according to his grace. Think about it like this. Right now, many of you are aware that Agape Christian School is seeking to raise enough money to build a new building in the fall. It's a great endeavor, and I encourage you to talk to Bobby Samuel or Carolyn if you're interested in finding out more how you can help. And this Thursday, I think there's a a fundraiser at McAllister's Deli. Have food and give to a good cause? Why not? Uh, Can you imagine if Bobby Samuel and the rest of the board of directors, they need this money for the building. They call up Bill Gates, the wealthiest man to walk the face of the earth, or one of the wealthiest. They say, hi, Bill. As though that's how the conversation would go. Hi, Bill. We need some money to help us build a couple schools or a school in southern Illinois? Could you write us a check? What if on the other end he said, sure, I'll give, I'll give you some money to help out. Can you imagine? I, if I were Bobby, I'd probably start salivating. 
imagining how many zeros might be on that check. I'm going to have enough money to build 10 agapes all over southern Illinois. But what if you go to his office, and instead of zeros on that check, all he writes is a five, period, zero, zero. Five dollars from Bill Gates. You know what that would leave us with? More, a need for more money. <laughs> Ain't no one building a building with five bucks. It would leave us devastated, distraught. It would be a gift out of his abundant empire of wealth, not according to the massive accumulation of wealth he has. In our unholiness, in our sin, we need a gift of grace according to the riches of God's grace. We don't need it just out of. Small measure of his grace ain't going to cover past, present, future sin. We need all of it. We need it all. And the good news of the gospel is that for those who know their deep need for forgiveness of trespasses, God empties the bank account. He writes the check with limitless zeros to cover your trespasses. He doesn't ask that you do it because he knows you can't. Instead, he tells you you need it, and then he becomes the payment for your sin and allows it to happen because he loves you so much. It's a perfect payment of lavish grace. God's riches at Christ's expense all poured out to forgive you of past, present, and future sin. Your check paid in full. I don't know if you've ever remembered the last time you went out to a nice restaurant. You most likely had to pay the bill yourself. Some of us have had the pleasure, not me, some of of my friends have had the pleasure of they go to a nice restaurant and someone surprisingly pays their bill for them. Can you imagine, like, going to your favorite steakhouse and you you feast on three courses, really living it up. Got to hit the appetizer and the dessert. And you enjoy every last bite of it until you see the waiter come by with the check. Until you see that person bringing you the announcement of your debt owed. And then you shield your eyes in fear because you racked up a big bill. (laughs) At that moment, you're thinking, man, Six ounce would have satisfied. <laughs> Why'd I got it? My stomach was bigger than my eyes. And then, to your surprise, the waiter says, Sir, I have good news. Well, what kind of good news could you have for me at this point? Someone's paid for your check. That person at the table next to you, they paid it in full. Well, you say, How could that be? My credit card's in my wallet. You haven't melted it back in the, you know, where you take process payments. I haven't paid. Sir, someone else has paid for you. You're free to go. You're covered. That check has been paid once and for all. It's done. It's settled. You were brought with a price. Your check has been paid. If you are in him, if you are in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and sees all of your past, present, future trespasses, your transgressions, and through faith in his son's perfectly holy, sinless life, faith in his bodily, bloody, substitutionary death on the cross, and faith in his victoriously risen resurrection from, (laughs) resurrection, victorious resurrection from the dead, he says, you're free. Your bill has been paid. And here's why it must become a personal acceptance on your behalf. See, one day the check comes for all of us, spiritually speaking. The check comes for everyone. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only question is, will it be a bowing and a confessing unto life or unto judgment? See, apart from faith in Jesus, our bill's not paid. 
we don't have the bank account deep enough to pay the penalty that our sin deserves before a holy and infinitely righteous God. But his holy and infinitely righteous son gave up his life, poured out every ounce of his blood to absorb every ounce of God's wrath so that through faith in him, the check is paid. And now if you are in him, another check ain't coming. There is no other check coming. See, God gives us this grace according to the, according to the riches of his grace. And he gives, us, gives this to us in all wisdom and insight, it says. In verse 8, in all wisdom and insight. This is such a profound mystery. A spiritual mystery that we can't understand unless his spirit and his word work together to open the eyes of our hearts, pointing us to his son as our greatest treasure. All wisdom and insight. God doesn't just do this. He makes it known to us. And so as you're hearing this proclaimed, as you're potentially being worked upon by the Holy Spirit, putting these words of God spoken out in Scripture deep down into your heart, you might be led to realize the wisdom and insight that I need for salvation is now being offered to me. God working to open the eyes of your hearts to see what the eyes of the flesh can't and often don't want to. In Jesus, you can be forgiven. His word and his spirit may be convicting you of this now. And if he, if that is the case, this is the means through which God is using to draw you unto salvation, not just acknowledgement of him, but deep delight in him because he's met your greatest need. So my implore, imploring encouragement to you, I don't even know if imploring is a word, my encouragement, my deep encouragement, is to don't let this pass by. Don't let this just be another Sunday. If you've yet to personally give him your sin and receive his forgiveness, this isn't just another Sunday. January 13, 2019 might be a day of eternal significance for you. It might be the day where you celebrate and savor Jesus as your greatest treasure for the first time and for the rest of eternity after this. Would you run to him? And if you have given him your sin and received his forgiveness, are you really living in light of it? Are you living in light of this check being paid once and for all? See, in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. A second check ain't coming if you're in Christ. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. The shame, the guilt, the remorse you feel over past sin has been dealt with, paid for. You've been clothed in righteousness. The fear that you have about the future potentially sending your way out of salvation... Losing it, well, unfortunately, we would lose our salvation if we could, but we won't, because in Christ we are guarded for that day. An imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, as it says in 1 Peter 1, kept safe for us through him who saved us. Are you living in light of this reality, complete forgiveness? And this reality, complete forgiveness, isn't a license to sin. It's not a license to sin. It's a license to be free of the shame and guilt, and then to live a light a life in which you are continually sanctified. The Spirit working with you and in you to conform you to the character of Christ. You used to be a slave to sin. You used to live in the eternal pawn shop of hell and Satan and sin. But you've been set free from that. Don't go back to it. You've been set free for for being a slave to God. To be made righteous like His Son. Would you live in light of this reality, you've been completely forgiven through a costly freedom 
And when, then would we celebrate together the certain future that this redemption offers. Let's go to verse 9 to 10. The certain future that comes to us by way of redemption in the Son. Through Christ, God is making known to us, it says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What a wonderful plan, a wonderful future. You and I would probably live really different if we knew the future, didn't, wouldn't we? Can you imagine? If I knew what the weather was going to be like next week, I'd plan accordingly. If I knew what interest rates were going to be like in five to ten years, I'd plan accordingly. If I knew what my kids or, or potentially grandkids would be doing in ten years, who they'd marry, I would, I would anticipate, I would look towards that and live differently now. We can't know everything about the future, but God does help us to know one thing for certain, that in Christ, all things will be united to him. All things will be gathered up. The broken creation and his people, the church, will be united to him forever. And that is his plan for the fullness of time. See, in verse 9 it says, he's making known this mystery, the mystery of his will, which as we've seen is to draw sinners unto himself, reconcile those who are unholy, make them holy, adopt them as his children, and he set it forth in Christ. Jesus is not just the means of our future. He is the goal. Jesus is not just the means of our future. He is the goal. In Revelation, when this fullness of time comes to fruition, our chief affection will always and only be for him. And upon salvation, that's what he longs to give us. That's what he longs to inspire in us. Not just dutiful obligation to follow him, but deep, heartfelt delight because he's met your greatest need and therefore he's your greatest treasure. Jesus is not just the means of your future. He's the goal. He's the ends. This is the plan for the fullness of time, which he's previewing now in Christ. It says the fullness of time, the eschatological end. We talked about that. And he's previewing it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's like you go to the movie theaters and you see that 90-second preview. All, like, I'm I'm a sucker for action movies. So the last time I went to the movies was a long time ago. You know, you see, like, the James Bond-type preview. As much action and intense drama you can pack into a 90-second preview, it makes you long for the day of that feature film being released. It makes you say, I will pay whatever amount of money is needed to go and see that movie. When Jesus Christ came to live, die, and be raised, it's like the 90-second promo that appetizes our souls for the day of his second advent. When he returns, the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, to wipe away every sin, sorrow, suffering, to draw to himself all of his people from all over the world, every tribe, nation, tongue, and race, all praising him together. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Can you imagine? He is our chief affection now and always. And it says he's going to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And honestly, there is debate about what this means. All things, things in heaven and on earth. Some people will take this and lift this one passage out and say, all things means all people, regardless of faith in Christ, will be drawn unto him. But I think the Bible warns strongly against that. 
I think as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, which I believe is one of the best tools we can use to rightly understand whenever we have questions, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, or a.k.a. the Bible told me so. I believe that this passage talks and previews God's redeeming, uniting work for his people in fallen creation. Because in Acts 4, it says there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Paul himself says in Ephesians 36 times that every spiritual blessing is in him, only in Christ. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. But if salvation has come to you through your faith in Christ's work for you, that means you can long for that day, the future, future film being released, when Jesus returns to restore our brokenness and unite creation in the church. First and foremost, he's going to restore our brokenness. I asked you what your greatest need was when you walked into this room, and immediately I bet you had two to three things come to mind. In conversation with many of you this week, I've heard of hospital stays. I've heard of failing joints and bodies. I've heard of sleepless nights, crippling anxieties that makes you wonder, what's going to happen tomorrow? We know that not only us, but all of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And we long for the day, the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of sons, when Jesus returns to restore all that sin has turned upside down in God's good house. And he's coming. He will return, and we know that because Calvary, the cross, that perfect payment, was followed by a victorious resurrection. See, he walked up to that hill knowing he was the Lamb of God who must be slain for the forgiveness of our sins, take away our trespasses. And after three days of being dead, he walked out of that tomb. The one who is now alive and reigning, walking up to Calvary, walking out of the tomb. In him we have life, and not just a little lowercase l life. We have capital L life, life for all eternity. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you, if you are in him. He will give life to your mortal bodies, not just eternally, but also now. Inspiring this hope that in him we have victory over even death. In him, we have forgiveness from every past, present, future sin. In him, we have the love of God that can never be taken away from us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what suffering or walking amidst. And this changes how we hope. It changes how we walk through suffering. If you have this hope, if you know that this is the future that God has secured through the resurrection, it means you can enter into suffering without despair or being overwhelmed by it. Here's what I mean we can and should be honest in the things that are broken in this world. The sin, the sorrow, the suffering. God, I don't like that there is racial prejudice. I don't like that our bodies break down. I don't like that there's income disparity and inequality, which makes many people suffer. I long for you to return and to restore what sin has broken. But I also know that I can cast my cares and anxieties on you, knowing that you care for us. I know you care for us, so I'll be honest, and I'll long for you to heal what's broken, but I also rest and trust in the fact that some things won't find total, total, forget, or total healing until Christ returns. But I can rest in the peace that surpasses understanding, confident that God shows his love for me on the cross, and God shows his power toward me in the tomb. I can't know a greater degree of either 
love or power than what's at the cross and what's in the tomb. And so that's who I run to. And this plan for the fullness of time is not just to alleviate our suffering and to give us God himself as our greatest joy, but it's also to unite all people together in worship to him. That coming heavenly kingdom is pictured in Revelation 7, verse 9. Every tribe, nation, tongue, and race around the throne of the Lamb, worshiping him in one unified voice, glory, glory, glory. I can't even imagine. But yet, what a wonderful gift and and privilege and responsibility we have in the local church to pursue that sort of unity even now. To pursue this unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, even across ages, income brackets, uh, life stage, whatever. And here's what it might practically look like. When we come to have dinner Wednesday evenings, what might it look like to sit at a different table with people who are a different age than you? When we get together in small groups throughout the week, what might it look like to join a group where you might be the outlier in stage of life? It might seem like there's a lot of young marrieds and you're the retiree. Can you imagine the potential redemptive beauty shown off to the world when people see a group of people who otherwise wouldn't gather together but can only claim the blood of Jesus to unite? What a powerful display. When we get together for lunch after Sundays, would you invite someone who maybe you've never talked to? Everyone enjoys the Golden Corral. Let's just enjoy it with someone new. (laughs) See, God's plan for the fullness of time centers and points to Jesus Christ. And we've seen his work in the life, death, and resurrection of his, uh, his work on our behalf. This is the redemption that we have. I long for us to each know that he has met our greatest need. And I long for us to know that because only then will he be our greatest treasure. In Jesus, we have redemption. We have been bought back from everything that would seek to separate us from God. We have been given a costly freedom, total forgiveness, guaranteed a certain future, and it's all in him, all through faith in Jesus. And so now as we begin to turn our attention to praise him in song and to speak with him in prayer, I'm going to invite you to prepare your hearts and consider how might God be inviting me to respond to his word as proclaimed today? How has the spirit been using God's very own words to stir in my heart a need for and a celebration of what he's done for me? And I'm going to give you some time in prayer and the elders are going to be standing up around the room or in front. Um, If you'd like prayer for anything, I encourage you to go to them for that. And if nothing else, Speak with God in prayer before you leave today and response to him speaking to us in his word. Amen? Let me pray for us before we have a time of response. Father, we thank you so much that there is redemption through your son. Father, we thank you that even though we deserve to be separated from you forever, you have come to us. You have sought to undo what sin has messed up and ransacking your good house. Lord, you have come to pay our ransom price through the blood of your son. You have come to forgive every past, present, future sin. You have come to tell us we will be united to you forever. Lord, what a gift, what a joy, what an unearned and undeserved privilege, your grace towards us. And it's all through Jesus. So we celebrate and we worship him. Please set our affection on him and open our mouths to speak speak to you in prayer now.
We love you, Lord. Amen.